One of the theories that I have is that women aren't perceived as good as we are, partly because I think that the classic perceptions of a, of a leader are somebody who has male characteristics, you know, that there is a sense of, you know, power looks macho, you know, or sounds macho. And I have seen lots of women, including myself early on in my career, trying to fit in, try to, if not be like a man, then blend in as much as we could. And, you know, often wear dark colors, often feel a little bit miserable about how we're, you know, not embracing who we really are. And I've learned over my rather long career that actually, I just don't think that's the right approach if we're going to succeed. Hello, I'm Emile Bellet, founder of Vespod and author of You're Not Broke, You're Pretty Rich, and you're listening to The Wallet. Every week with my brilliant guests, we give you the best tips, guidance, and a good dose of inspiration and motivation to manage your money better. We want you to feel confident in saving more, earning more, and investing for the long term. Helena Morrissey is a passionate advocate for the equality of women and gender balance in workplaces. She's a member of the House of Lords and an established author and mentor with three decades of experience in the financial industry. I interviewed Helena a few years ago, in 2018, and at the time we discussed her career in finance, being a mother of nine, and how she managed to stay true to herself. I encourage you to watch the talk on YouTube after listening to this episode. Helena tells me how she navigated her way to become a CEO and a board member in a male-dominated industry, and how developing her style and personal brand has helped her to build self-confidence and lead as her authentic self. As chairman of a large investment platform, Helena explained what the role of the chair entails, how we can get more women into leadership and senior positions, and how the statistics of women on boards have improved in recent years. In her latest campaign, Helena is encouraging more women to invest for the long term, so today she shares with me her top tips for getting started with investing. I'd also just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, PensionBee. PensionBee has helped over 500,000 customers be pension confident. It enables savers to take control of their finances by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one simple online plan. With PensionBee, you can manage your pension like you manage your bank account, Check your real-time balance, your projected retirement income, and set up contributions and withdrawals all from the palm of your hand. Plus, you'll get human support from your very own UK-based account manager, or as PensionBee calls them, BeekKeeper. You can sign up to PensionBee today with the names of your old pension providers in just 5 minutes, and if you're self-employed, you can open a pension from scratch. As always with investment, your capital is at risk. Please note that we are not financial advisors. The articles and information made available on Vespod and this podcast are provided for information and educational purposes only and do not constitute financial advice. Good morning, Elena. Good morning, Emily. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well. It's so nice to, to see you. We've seen each other a while ago, in 2018, you came to a Vespod event in Shoreditch and it was amazing, super well attended. I enjoyed it. I remember some fantastic questions. These days we have to do things a bit differently, but um, it's great to be with you again. And hopefully we'll back for like, uh, you know, real in-person like events. That would be amazing. But a lot of things happened for you, <laughs> for everyone in, in this time. But before we start, can I ask you to, uh, to introduce yourself in your, you know, in your own words? What are you passionate about? So my name is Helena Morrissey. I'm a city woman. I've worked in the financial services industry for over three decades. I'm very passionate about um, trying to help women invest. Um, and in my upcoming role as chair of AJ Bell, I'll take on the chair of being well in January at the AGM. 
we are launching or have launched Money Matters uh, to help women invest. I have nine children and three grandchildren, and I have written a couple of books too, uh, A Good Time to Be a Girl, which we talked about when I last met you, Emily, and now most recently, just in October 2021, uh, Style and Substance, uh, a more practical career guide for women who want to succeed at work. Yeah, and I've just finished your book. It's fantastic. We'll talk about style today because it's also quite a different conversation. And when you started posting on Instagram about, you know, your outfits and stuff. And I think it was at the beginning of lockdown, maybe. I was like, wow, that's, you know, that's different. That's like a new face of, of Helena. Uh, so I, I really wanted to know, you know, why, why this book. But maybe if we get started, you know, you have nine kids, three grandchildren. It's been like hectic. Yes. <laughs> How did you, did you cope during, you know, lockdown with, with work and, uh, and your family? Well, I think like lots of people, particularly women that I know, we somewhat struggled. We, but there were in first lockdown. I think certainly our family. We had we had thirteen people in our household at that stage, and I was also somewhat in transition from a full time executive role to finding my feet with non exec work. And I, I got to admit, it was it was quite chaotic. But we had a sense of optimism. I think at that point because obviously we were new to lockdown. The weather was lovely in England, and. It was, in some senses, a wonderful reset moment for family life. And we were one that some of the lucky people, you know, who were able to sort of retreat, as it were. And I did find it hard in terms of, you know, even just like the washing and ironing. It's a, a lot when you have that many people in the house. And some days, I mean, it was it was slightly comical, just, you know, the amount of time that was spent on all the domestic chores. So quite difficult to do proper paid work then. But I think as, lot, as the coronavirus pandemic wore on, I think we got worn down. And certainly by the time it came to the third lockdown in the UK in the start of 2021, uh, January and February, I think everyone had, you know, had enough. And certainly I have heard a lot of very negative, difficult stories, particularly around single mothers, of course, women with very young children who've been struggling with schooling, um, homeschooling, of course, and uh, obviously a lot of anxiety about the economy, about job security about the future post the pandemic so I think there were definitely different phases and I'm glad now that we do seem to despite not conquering the virus we seem to be uh, learning better how to live with it yeah I mean I agree with you know you've been saying it's been it's been crazy also for me running <laughs> running a business having the kids working around the babies and yeah for for women I think it's been taking a step back also and realizing, you know, women are still the primary carers. We still do all the work. So men are getting into it. So hopefully that will accelerate, you know, some of the change we'll see. But going back to, you know, to you and, and what happened. So you left your sort of full-time role and now you have different positions that must be like super, super exciting. And you also publish your second book, Style and Substance, about, you know, how to show up, how, you know, important is your appearance, how to make, you know, good impression. So can you talk about what's your mission with this book and how different it is from your, from your first book? So I think most of us are frustrated that women are still often feeling unfulfilled in their careers, not feeling that they're getting the recognition that they deserve that they clearly merit, you know, obviously women are just as intelligent as men, just as well qualified, if not more qualified. Um, obviously, we do have sometimes a more of a domestic burden, but still, it has seen that there's been a lot of initiatives and a lot of effort around, including by companies, and it's it's been exceeding the results so far. And one of the, the theories that I have is that it's, the problem is, or one of the problems is that we're not perceived, women aren't perceived as good as we are. 
And partly because I think that the classic uh, perceptions of a, of a leader are somebody who has male characteristics. You know that they are maybe someone aggressive. Maybe I mean, I'm slightly exaggerating just for the effect in some ways. But, you know, there, there is a sense of, you know, power looks macho, you know, or sounds macho. And I have seen lots of women, including myself, early on in my career, trying to fit in, try to, if not be like a man, then, you know, blend in as much as we could. And, you know, often wear dark colors, often feel a little bit miserable about how we're, you know, not embracing who we really are. And I've learned over my rather long career that actually, I just don't think that's the right approach if we're going to succeed. I think actually, if we could just actually let go of that anxiety that we are a bit different already, perhaps particularly if we work in a male-dominated industry like finance, and embrace that and not submerge our difference, but actually enjoy enjoy dressing up if that's what we want to, enjoy colour, enjoy you know, just being slightly different already, then I think we will go a lot further. And, and I have written this book really to try to show women that you don't have to suddenly become frivolous, obviously, and only be talking about your appearance or your voice or the sort of more superficial, what might seem superficial things, but it is about owning a personal brand. It is about creating a personal brand that reflects who you are. And then, you know, actually hopefully moving along from being slightly sort of in a vicious spiral about it when you're not really noticed because you're not showing up as, as yourself to creating this virtuous circle where you feel more confident and people treat you uh, differently because they see you as confident and you start to enjoy yourself and your career progresses. Yeah, and especially in industry like, you know, finance, I remember my, my days working for Lehman Brothers and then in private equity was just, you know, I'm going to wear a suit and I'm going to be so small so that people don't notice me. I'm going to do my work and stuff like that. And I think more and more we talk about building a personal brand. I think it's still difficult in some industries, but it's so valuable. So, you know, how have you been building your, your, your brand over the years? Uh, and do you think that, I mean... Maybe if if you started to do that a bit younger, do you think that would have given you more opportunities in the in the workplace? Yeah. So when I I started my career, I was literally the only woman in a team of sixteen, and I did dress in a very sort of nondescript way. I always wore sort of navy blue suit and low heels, and you know I just didn't stand out at all. And I was, as I've talked about on many other occasions, passed over for the first promotion. I was this invisible, you know, person who worked all the time, really. Then when I moved to Newton, uh, this is a long time ago, actually, 1994, that company and the founder of the company, Stuart Newton, was way ahead of his time in terms of celebrating diversity of thought and diversity of perspective. And he really gave me a license to, to be more like myself. And uh, obviously, I had learned as well from that first career experience that actually blending in wasn't great for my career. I needed to sort of be noticed a bit more. But he really gave me permission to do that. And I didn't go crazy, obviously. I wasn't suddenly, you know, wearing, you know, flamingo pink every day or something. But I just I just wore things that uh, made me feel competent and genuine power dressing, I realized, not trouser suits that were pinstriped, as I had worn in the 19, late 1980s, can you believe it? Um, I have photographic evidence of that. But, you know, sharp skirt suits that with high heels just made me feel more authoritative and more myself, more, you know, reflecting how I like to dress and how I like to present myself. And that actually was like the turning point for my career. I mean, it was it was I can actually think of particular meetings that I cover in the book where I realized that I was now being considered as a serious player 
just because of how I was presenting myself. And uh, I was still quite young. I mean, I started my career in the city when I was 21. So I didn't, you know, I went straight from school to university and then straight to the city and so forth. So this meant that I did become the CEO of Newton at the age of 35. So I, I was quite young at that still at that point. But it just showed as well how much of a difference. You know, I had not been promoted in my first company. And then I became the CEO in seven years of the second. I, I was the same person. I was the same person in terms of my work ethic. I was the same person in terms of my aptitudes and, you know, the good and the things and the mistakes, you know, it was the same. But the difference was, I'm absolutely convinced that I was perceived as a leader in the second phase and not in the first and um, obviously not everybody wants to lead but they still want to be valued for who they are so yeah I'm uh, let why not embrace this a little bit more and I just wanted to say as well that I started the Instagram account after stepping back from my role at League of the General um, in late 2019 so a few months before the pandemic and I started it because I had a little bit more time and I also was conscious that when I spoke at events Often women would say, oh, what should I wear? You know, I feel the question of appropriateness in a male-dominated environment. I feel sort of it's a bit of a minefield. And so I suppose, well, I, I thought, why don't we have a discussion about what we should wear rather than everybody sort of feel that everybody else understands this and they're the only ones that are a bit left out. Yeah. And maybe, you know, we can all have different styles. Also, I don't think it matters. You'll talk a lot about the financial industry, obviously, in the book. But, you know, what are your tips for women, maybe also in other industries in terms of, you know, finding your own style? You know, where, you know, where do you where do you start? What's maybe appropriate or what you think is appropriate? Because if that helps you build your confidence, it's it's already really good. So where where do we start with, um, you know, with, with style? And, and also for, for women who don't necessarily have a big budget mm. to you know, maybe buy, you know, buy their clothes or don't want to spend too much. Now, it's amazing what you can do with clothing. Uh, you know, you can rent clothes, you can buy secondhand. And you talk a lot about that, which which I think is, is super. And we have to rethink how we consume. So, yeah, what would be your first tip for, you know, anyone thinking about, yeah, I need to think about my style maybe a bit more because it's important to me. So first thing is to know yourself, you know, what what characteristics about yourself uh, are important to you? What do you value and also, where do you want to get to? You know, I think it, sometimes people say, oh, dress for the job you want. I think if the job you want is, you know, president or prime minister or something, you know, you might, and you're right, a graduate, it might be a bit much, but you you should dress certainly for the, you know, the job that you want in the near term. So I think, first of all, it's just understanding yourself and being able to be self-aware, which I think is a good exercise anyway, whether it's to do with style or your substance, you know, very important to understand, you know, what you're good at, what defines you? And it's not indulgent to think about that. I mean, I think one of the things, reasons why women often don't think about this so much as perhaps would be helpful for their careers and their general happiness is because it seems a bit self-indulgent. I'm not suggesting suddenly everyone becomes vain and narcissistic, but it's like an investment in yourself. You know, step back and think, well, actually, how do I want to be perceived? And it might be that you want to be perceived as, you know, say a leader. It might be want to be perceived as a team player. There are all sorts of different uh, characteristics. And I've interviewed several women in the book who've gone through that reflection. And, you know, generally the people who are perhaps a bit older and have succeeded and so forth have been quite true to themselves throughout. And it's a bit of a cliche to say, oh, be yourself and so forth. But you can't really be yourself unless you understand what's important to you. So I start with that. And obviously also a bit of self-awareness. I think it's very hard sometimes to analyze our own reflection and how we're perceived, you know, where, how our body language comes across, how 
we present when we're you know giving a, a verbal presentation so have a have a friend you know someone you trust uh, perhaps a mentor perhaps a daughter in my case you know they're very honest <laughs> they could be uh, you're also probably a bit young to do this but you know they'll give you honest feedback about you know colors that drain drain you or styles that don't work think about the things in your wardrobe that you get compliments about as well what are the what are the characteristics about them and i think sometimes it just seems it's so overwhelming there's so much choice so much thrown at us but just i'm trying to help people maybe edit down a little bit and then feel you know it could be one step at a time perhaps if you work in a very traditional setting you want to just push out your comfort zone where you are today you know gradually and then just find out the reactions, find out how it makes you feel. Um, and before you know it, hopefully you'll be, you know, in that next role, feeling more confident and enjoying your careers. I think that's one of the things that we need to get to the place where instead of sort of beating our chests about we're not progressing, we, we want to say I'm happy in doing what I'm doing. I really, I really love my job. Yeah, that's quite rare these days. <laughs> you know? Sadly, that is sad, isn't it? But you can, you can find a job you like, or at least, you know, a team you like and, and, you know, moving within, you know, the organization and there's, you know, also so many things you, you can do. But I had sort of the same limiting belief working in finance that I could only do, you know, one thing because I've been doing my modeling and my presentation, but actually there's so many things uh, you can do. So it's maybe building this like extra confidence. But for you, I think what's been quite interesting. So if you want to follow like Elena Morris's journey, I'll invite you to watch our you know, YouTube video of our first talk in 2018. And now we'll talk about what happened after. <laughs> so, you know, leaving your executive job, now you're a board member, you're a member of the House of Lords, you're obviously a mentor, a public speaker. How was the, the transition uh, from, you know, working full time? Because I'm sure there's a lot of things in terms of, you know, yourself like being a very influential person within an organization and then moving and do other things maybe there's also you know maybe a financial impact do you think that has changed also your you know your purpose and and, and your mission and are you enjoying what you're doing today yes well um good news is i'm enjoying what i'm doing today and i'm very excited about becoming the chair of aj bell and we'll come back to that in a moment but i have to confess that actually i found the transition very difficult and in all honesty there was a few reasons um that were perhaps not things I could have foreseen, but but obviously we had the pandemic um, a few months after. And obviously I wasn't at that stage settled. I didn't have, you know, lots of positions lined up. I wasn't then in the House of Lords. It felt as though certainly it was bad timing, but not that you can orchestrate these things. And the pandemic was awful for everybody. So I'm not saying it was worse for me, but it was just, it was very unsettling. Then, of course, we've talked already about, you know, the, the pressures at home, meaning that then it was very hard to actually spend much effort looking for other roles um, and obviously quite hard to find them at that stage. But also, and I haven't really talked about this so much, but I do in the book a little bit, but also, it's a bit personal, I find it a bit embarrassed a little bit, but I was going through the menopause. And so I was going through all these sort of bodily, you know, changes and um, sort of hormones all over the place and things. And... I found the combination of that really unsettling. I just felt very, um, you know, very bereft, really, at that point. But obviously now, I mean, it was great to be uh, appointed to the House of Lords. I'm still finding my feet there because obviously the first year it was sort of all in hybrid and I didn't really get my get my bearings at all. I, I'm on a couple of other boards uh, now and enjoying that. And, of course, I have I use the time to write the book, which perhaps I wouldn't have had the opportunity to 
do. And, um, you know, I genuinely obviously want to help people, women to develop their careers. It's not just a sort of superficial, you know, every now and again thing. That's a very big motivating factor for me in my life. So I'm definitely in a better place now. But it showed me that everybody, anybody can go through these sort of highs and lows, uh, peaks and troughs, and no one's immune from normal feelings yeah and 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 you talk about that like you know the you know setbacks and how you overcame them and and from very early on like being in this team of like maybe 16 you know fund managers missing out on a promotion because there was some doubt over you know your commitment uh with a baby because of course you had nine children so you know you've been pregnant actually a lot of the time you work so i'm sure that as you know, an impact on how people maybe perceive you, how you're going to be, you know, managing your work and like personal life. What have you learned from like maybe some setbacks or like some challenges that you can still like apply today? Because sometimes, you know, there's lots of triggers, especially like post pandemic, you know, and that can be stuff coming from competition, not getting a salary increase, not getting a promotion, being forced to go back to work like four days a week, like stuff like that. So we can be very frustrated. So how can we approach like sort of this yeah, daily, monthly like setbacks in our work lives? Well, first and foremost, um, what I have learned, which is very valuable to me, and I think it's true for everybody, is it's how you deal with the setback that's uh, the important thing, that we will have setbacks. There is, you know, it might have felt we've had more of them in recent years because of the pandemic. This is part of a, of life, you know. This is not something that we can be hoping doesn't happen to us. So the key is dealing with it so that you emerge hopefully stronger and better and able to deal with things better the next time. Now, I'm very grateful now, in all honesty, for that first career setback because it taught me to take more charge of my career. And if my message to people listening who maybe experience something that might be bordering on discrimination or they just might feel that they're not valued in the way they should be, is it's not always personal about you. There are a lot of people who are still not really up with events in terms of treating people as they should and often, um, you know, take a good hard look and think, actually, this is not really about me. It's about the culture of the firm I'm working at or it's about the boss that I'm working for or it's about a colleague or something. And be honest, it might be that you've partly to blame or so forth. But if if it genuinely is uh, something extraneous, then make sure that you learn from that about how to avoid it happening again. I didn't, and it might not come overnight, so that's the other thing I would emphasize. But I didn't leave the first company immediately that I had this career setback. Don't storm out in a fit of pique, you know, about something. I reflected on it and I realized, as I was I was very bewildered and confused in all honesty because at that point, until that point, I had never thought my gender would have anything to do with my career. But it obviously seems ridiculous to say that now when we are faced with so much evidence that it, it often does but I was I mean if I'd been able to afford to quit I probably would have done but I'm glad I didn't I'm glad I reflected on was it me was it the culture of the firm I concluded at that stage the firm was very traditional and it's going to be very hard for me single-handedly to sort of push against everything and to succeed but it made me look for a firm where I where there was a quite a different culture where it was more meritocratic and I found one, you know, uh, th- that firm is out there for you. If and, and later on, when I've had, you know, setbacks, whether it's inside a company or and leaving, again, it's not that I don't take my share of, you know, something that's gone wrong. I obviously uh, have contributed sometimes to setbacks. And you might need time to recover from the setback. Give yourself a little bit of time if you can. Obviously, we're not always uh, in full control over 
practical matters like finances might need sorting out and so forth. But if you can, take a little bit of time to reflect and to work out a path forward. Um, I always remember my husband saying at one stage when I was very, when I left Newton and, you know, I've been CEO for 15 years. I had served 22 years at Newton. It was time for me to leave. This has all been sort of thought through for many years and so forth. But I still felt a big part of my identity had gone, that that was all tied up with. And I had friends who were there. I'd, you know, this was all part of my life. And suddenly it wasn't there anymore. And again, I felt a bit bereft. I've used that word twice now. And my husband said, you know, you, you need to have a bit of time to process all of this change. But then remember that the reason why you needed to leave at some point was so that you can go on to do something you know, different, and you have other ambitions and other things you want to do. So it just t- takes a bit, it's like a, a process of, you know, grieving or acclimatizing or just dealing with a setback. But every single person has setbacks and you are not alone in them. And that's my final point before I will let you ask the next question. Make sure you have great support. So I think one of the things that we often make a mistake over is thinking that we have to have all the answers in ourselves. I mean, nobody has all the answers. It's not possible to know everything. And certainly if you're all caught up emotionally or just intellectually in something, financially, etc., it's going to be very hard for you to see clearly. Have allies, have, you know, maybe it's your partner, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's somebody you've worked with in another context in the firm that you've left or are leaving or whatever the setback is. Just get some sounding boards to help you, to reassure you, to give you some pointers and don't feel that that's a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength to to, to recognize that you don't have all the answers. And I guess to be able to do that, you, you need to be quite clear on, on your goals and your values, even if these things can, you know, change very often. And, and if, you know, if, if you have a coach, business coach, life coach, maybe that's, that's useful, but it's really like setting up these goals. And for you, how do you you know, set your ambitious goals, I guess, maybe your new mission with AJBL, helping women to invest money, that's that's a big one. But, you know, when do you reassess and when do you set these goals? And do you think today you still set like super ambitious goals like you used to do or are you in a different mindset? So there, I've heard it said a few times that as women get older in particular, then often their ambitions become bigger in the sense of wanting to change things for the better. You know, it's not necessarily... Same in terms of a narrow career objective, perhaps. But I guess I found a few things in my life that I feel that I've been able to make even a small difference. And and they've, in turn, um, you know, I've, I've felt these are important things for me to keep working on. And obviously, one is gender equality generally, having started a 30% club back in 2010 and seeing, frankly, the surprising success of that because we're now you know, over the, the nearly 35% women on boards in the UK, and it was less than 10% back in 2011. So uh, amazing, really. And that was both fulfilling, but also made me feel, well, actually, maybe I could use my whatever influence I have to affect better change. The experience that I had being passed over for promotion because I had a baby has very much driven my belief, my desire to make sure other women don't suffer from that same similar experience. And on that, obviously, when I was at Legal in General, I was running the personal investing business that they've since sold to Fidelity um, and was, again, trying to focus on the uninvested, including lots of women. So this has not been something that's just suddenly occurred to me, you know, and we talked, you know, three years ago or whatever it was about, 
about it, but it clearly, um, and in my first book, I have a chapter, Women, Money and Power, where I argue that unless women have more share of the money, we won't have more share of the power. And it's not a nice to have, it's essential. So I still believe that. So I think finding a few things that really, really, really matter to you and then sticking to them, it's very important. And, you know, I, if I give some advice for people who want to do more than just their just, I mean, sometimes people's day jobs are very intense and they've got a family as well, so don't feel pressured to do it. But if there's something that you have a real desire to help with, then, you know, start doing something in that area and see where it takes you. Um, so I would say my ambitions are just different and perhaps they're more about other people or more about society than it is about my own career at this point. Yeah. And to be honest, I wasn't really surprised when I <laughs> when I saw your new campaign with, with AJ Bell. So we're going to talk about... It's not about a big shock, no. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I was quite happy to see that. So you're now the chair designate at AJ Bell. So it's a FTSE 250 company and their purpose is to help people invest. Can you explain maybe, you know, what's your role of, of chair? What's, you know, the difference with board members? Because people don't necessarily know, you know, how you govern, uh, you know, companies different from, you know, what the management is doing. And how can we get more women into, <laughs> into these positions? So obviously at the moment, I'm a non-exec director at AJ Bell and, and the non-exec directors oversee the management team. So we're responsible for making sure that the company is well-managed that you know, we look at things like remuneration of executives, we look at um, strategy, obviously, and sense check the strategy and, have con and contribute to the strategy. But we are not running the company day to day. Uh, Non-execs don't do that. Um, they're as, as sort of checks and balances. And obviously, there's a lot of regulatory issues involved as well. You know, ultimately, the directors you will know, decide things like the dividend policy for a company, We'll make decisions on key hires of executives as well, as well as non-execs. So it's an important role. And, and one of the reasons why the 30% Club had a chance of success was because that was set up straight after the financial crisis, 2008 um, crisis, when there'd been very few women or very few diverse people of any sort on boards. And there was appetite for new perspectives to come in. And one of the reasons why... The regulator said that the World Bank of Scotland failed was because they didn't have diversity on the board. They didn't have challenge. Um, everyone was part of a nice club. So um, it is an important role, but you're not running the business day to day. Now, in joining AJ Bell and as the non-exec to become the chair when uh, we have the next annual general meeting, then obviously I will step up so that I'm sort of managing the board. And obviously in that, you know, you, for example, the CEO reports to the chair of the company that the, CEO does, the chair does the CEO's appraisal, that sort of thing. So it is a very responsible role. And uh, there are still very few women, there's obviously very few female CEOs in the FTSE or the FTSE 250 companies and relatively few chairs. Um, I haven't actually done a tally uh, of late, but we're still um, talking, I think, at less than 10% across the whole 350. And because obviously the it gives you some, you know, power and influence over a company, it's very important that we at least have, you know, some better representation of, of women, of ethnic minorities. We have a, a body of chairs that looks more like general population. But it has proved to be something of the, the last bastion because, you know, having made a lot of progress on the boards, a lot of women were appointed actually SIDS, which is the senior independent director, one devil down from the chair. And a lot of people thought, well, SIDS will become the chair and we'd all be sorted. But actually, that's not 
necessarily what's happened. So it's still something to, to work on. And obviously, 30% Club, I don't run the 30% Club these days. That's managed by, run by Anne Cairns, um, who's vice chair of MasterCard, and she's the fantastic global chair. It's become much more of a global campaign now. Having more female ch- chairs is very much one of the aspirations, as well as obviously more female executive directors. Uh, so we've done a really good job, I think, on the non-execs, but there are still, as I say, relatively few female CEOs or chief financial officers who are the usual two board directors from the executives but it's good you're, you're growing the you know female clubs of uh, <laughs> of, of ceos chairs well yeah I'm, I'm living and dreaming my own you know i'm i'm practicing what i preach here <laughs> and of course with, with ajabel uh, i think it was you know last week so you know beginning of november you launched a campaign to help women invest for the long term It's quite a hot <laughs> topic at the moment. You'll see that in, in, with lots of different players at Vespod. It's been at the core of what you know we've been doing for a few years now. So I'm really interested in you know what's happening in the space. You know what's your goal uh, with with the campaign, and maybe it's I mean maybe it's part of your overall also personal mission. So getting more people to invest, maybe more maybe women is you know one category because we know like women don't invest enough. We know we retire quite poor. We don't have enough money into our pension. So you know there's a lot of around you know building confidence. I think it's quite easy to access investing now for everyone, but it's a lot about telling women you can do it, you know, uh, it's literally for everyone. You can start very small and, and just understanding better the, the platform. So is it about education, mission? You know, what's the purpose of the of the campaign? So I think success ultimately would be when we've got, you know, 50-50 men and women coming in and, and buying, uh, invest or investing. Clearly, uh, as a country and as companies, we're a long way behind that at present. And I, I'm, I welcome, I'm thrilled um, that this is a hot topic now because clearly, you know, to, if we're going to make any progress, we need to be talking about it more. And I think this is an area where we need lots of different players raising awareness. Um, this is not sort of about a land grab of a company coming out and saying, oh, all the women should come invest with us. And obviously a lot has been tried already and not much has really seemed to resonate. And I think that's one of the conundrums still. So one of the things AJBL is doing is doing a lot of storytelling. You know, you mentioned about, you know, feeling the confidence, seeing other people like them investing. So we are interviewing through doing podcasts and so forth. Um, women of all sorts of backgrounds and, you know, ages and about their money and showing that actually, again, it's not the preserve of a few. This is available to lots of people. And also you mentioned education. You know, I'm asked so many times about well, I, I want to get started, but I'm not really sure how. Now, you know, you just said it's actually relatively easy if you sat down and sort of Googled various terms, but but it's still very difficult to get going. So what we're doing is we're putting a sort of lot of resources in the same place at AJ Bell and saying, look, here's a lot of, you know, here's some information about lots of different aspects of investing. Take your pick. Find what works for you. Because, again, I found myself in the past suggesting people look at this website, that website, Googling this, Googling that, and, and actually just making it simple and in one place. And we will evolve this campaign. So because no one has cracked it in terms of actually what is it that really moves people, women, from just vague curiosity about it to actually doing something and getting invested, we're going to see what works, what resonates, and then build on on that. Um, but often I think it is just about sort of feeling, actually, if she can do it, well, I can do it. You know, it's like, it's not a, um, and taking out the mystique and the mystery and not talking in jargon and 
not making it something that you know I hate being sold to. I hate it when somebody is and doesn't. I don't mean just financial products. I mean anything. If someone comes across as a salesy and is trying to get me to buy, I can see through that a mile, and I, it's very antagonistic to me. I just don't want to. I just get very belligerent. I don't want to, you know, buy it if they want to sell it to me. I want to someone who understands what matters to me and will help me to achieve what I'm trying to achieve with, on anything, really. So um, we'd be trying to apply that same thing. So at the moment, the, the uh, Money Matters sort of micro-site website, with pages within the website, you know, we've got some information, but it will keep building. Um, and we've got, you know, start a, a few podcasts up there and some, we're going to have some focus groups, some events. And I say, we'll, we'll see what works. But I'm delighted that there's more more focus on this. And it was good last year that in the pandemic, one of the, positives was that of course more people were sitting at home with a little bit more opportunity to well no excuses but to go through their uh, paperwork and to I mean I personally got my own pension in order which you know felt like a real weight off when I'd done that and they were all you know I worked at a number of firms and different schemes and different I was just it was all over the place um and it did take a little bit of time but I just encouraged people to treat it like getting fit and healthy you know you wouldn't go from being unhealthy or overweight or something to complete athletic build the next you would do it gradually yeah marathon runner whatever you would do it gradually and so just set aside a little bit of time each week or each month and it and it makes you feel good about you know okay well that's sorted you know I don't have to worry about that so much now and once you're happy with your own finances I guess is yeah opening the conversation with your friends with your girlfriends and I think that's something that has worked really well is I think what we've seen over the past few years is people opening up about money, which is, you know, great because it can be quite intimidating, overwhelming, you know, embarrassing sometimes to talk about money. So maybe investing is the solution, like, you know, how we can open up more because investing should also be your motivation. It's such a powerful thing to do and, you know, investing in what you believe in. So, and I think women are great investors, you know, it's been shown by research over the years. So let's, let's, let's do it more and, you know, slowly, hopefully we'll get more women investing money and securing their, their future. Well, you've done a great, played a great role, Emily, and well done on, you know, it's been fantastic seeing what you've done at Vestpod and just really the the in-person event that I had the pleasure to speak at uh, last time, where again, you know, addressing something starts with talking about it and just having a very natural, normal, you know, conversation and getting people not feeling that it's something that's, you know, like a lecture and they're sitting in a classroom, but actually it mean, it's meaningful to them. And I think you've done a f- phenomenal job. So, you know, congratulations on that. And, you know, it's, I think we have a lot now, a lot of momentum to build on to encourage people. And also our children, you mentioned girlfriends and so forth. But I think our children, that's one, th- one thing I would encourage anybody who's got started investing to then in turn talk to their children about because again just making it part of normal everyday life um I was talking to my youngest last night who's not maths is not her favorite subject let's put it like that and I said but it's important to have a certain level of, of skills and confidence about numbers so that you can look after your money that you won't get you know cheated on that you will be able to budget you'll be able to save and invest for things you want to by and you know we had just a nice natural normal conversation and just try to make it not you know it's an important life skill that we need to encourage our children to have yeah and and just wanted to you know take a few minutes to talk about you know your last very visible 
initiative that was the you know the girls fund and we talked about that at our previous event so this was like an you know index fund and that was like one of the first like gender oriented fund so i mean then i think they tried they merged the fund that uh, legal and general you you took your money back or you t- you know you sold your investments maybe talking about you know why did you want to have a, a girl fund and and how how did you build the, the, this fund basically what was what was the, the the mission so the idea was again you've talked about things that might sort of encourage women to invest and i think one thing is that we do want to invest in companies that share our values that believe in the same things that we believe in and so forth and i'm very conscious that over many years it's um and you can't prove causation but you can see the correlation firms that do well in terms of the gender equality at their company also tend to perform better. They have less risk and higher returns. And there's a lot of analysis to show that empirical studies in America, in Australia, in Europe and globally all say the same, that it's it's better for results. So I thought, well, let's put the money where our mouths are here. Let's set up a fund that is slightly skewing the investments towards companies that are doing better on a number of criteria around uh, gender policies and, and numbers, and then away from those companies are lagging. So it's quite simple. But I think, I mean, I don't know exactly what happened because when I left, uh, the fund had started to grow, but obviously it can take a bit of time before these things take off. And I'm just not sure if um, they tried to grow it some more and, it, and there wasn't the appetite or if they didn't try. I just don't know um, exactly what happened there. So as I mentioned, I mean, sold the personal investing business and anyway along the ways they decided to merge this gender equality fund and I just felt a bit disappointed if I'm honest um, and thought actually no I I invested in that for a particular reason Um, so I wasn't being I don't think I was being particularly aggressive and taking the money away I just thought uh, that's you know I signed up for something and then it's not doing that anymore I do still have the the climate change uh, version of the fund. And actually, I think one of the interesting things that I'm thinking about at present is, you know, obviously ESG, environmental, social and governance um, investing, has really risen to the fore. And perhaps that will encourage more women to invest because, again, we want to invest in these companies that share our values and um, beliefs. One of the things that we just need to make sure is that these ESG funds are doing what we think they're doing that actually, um, I know a lot of people talking about greenwashing now, um, but I've also got involved recently in thinking about human rights and how that's uh, factored into analysis. And at the moment, it's really because a lot of companies, a lot of investment funds are based on indices. A lot of those indexes, you know, do include companies that, you know, wouldn't stand up to a lot of scrutiny on human rights. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of traveling to go down before we can sort of match our beliefs with the funds that are available and I'll do my bit to just make sure that there's transparency around that that people really are clear about what's in their fund and um, because I think it's very important that investing for women is only going to work if it delivers the results both financially and morally that you want them to. Yeah and and I think it's it's a big want for women they want to invest in an ethical way they want to invest in line with ESG and and sometimes I feel it, it could be a barrier. So it's a motivation, which is amazing, but it could be a barrier because you realize it's not as green as you want it. You know, there's often the E and the S and the G's has somehow disappeared uh, and you want your portfolio to be perfect and really align with your values. But I'm often saying, 
you know, it can't really be perfect from the get-go. So, you know, get started today and slowly build up. And then you'll see that, I mean, there's the, the space is, is, um, is moving very fast, actually. So we're going to have a lot more propositions for also for retail investors and, and fund. But I think women really want that. So we, we're doing actually a lot of workshops around sustainable investing and, you know, how to picking funds and, and, and even like stocks, because I think that's quite interesting for, for women. And I certainly don't want to put anybody off by saying it's not perfect yet. You know, um, I think, as you said, it's important to get started. And the best way we can learn about investment, I think, is to, you know, invest a little bit and watch what happens and then invest some more. And then gradually we get confident to the point where we're doing regular investing. And also, I mean, already we've seen, for example, a lot more disclosure around certain uh, aspects of companies, non-financial information, as they would put it. Uh, obviously, the environment has been very front and centre recently with COP26 and, and also for a few years before that. So I think this is all kind of moving in the right direction and we can just, I think, by being a little bit vocal and asking questions and making sure we understand what we're investing in, I think this is all going to help to improve the whole marketplace. And before I ask you my quickfire question, Helena, can I ask you how do you see the, the future of you know, wealth management for, for women? So I'm very excited about it. I think we have, we've missed out on lots of things in, in our lives because we haven't take enough care of our own financial well-being. I, I do think now that there's an opportunity, or there always has been, but I think we've got the tools now. We can People can invest online, obviously, quite easily. You don't have to have a sort of personal relationship with somebody, which I think also put people off. So I'm very excited about the scope for doing something more about this. And as I said earlier, I think that the more the merrier, both in terms of numbers of women getting involved, but also the players who are offering things out there because this is like a groundswell now we want to end up with you know our share of the wealth and therefore our share of prosperity generally and uh, control over our own lives and not be dependent on on others thank you elena so quick fire question what is the best financial decision you ever made so the best financial decision was buying a house right in the depths of the property recession in 1991 I think it was or 1990 and it shows the importance of sometimes buying when everything is a bit of a panic <laughs> that's what I learned there and what is the worst financial decision worst financial decision um yeah I was thinking about this and I can't think of anything really disastrous um <laughs> which makes it sound a bit sort of I probably just spent a, a lot of money over the years that I should have set aside more for saving and investing early on that's probably the biggest mistake I've made um, coming to it a bit late. I, having had so many children, there was always, you know, mortgages to pay, school fees to pay, etc. And it was rather late in the day, really, even though I work in investments, that I started investing. Thank you. And what are the things you spend the most money on at the moment? Well, it is um, still school and university fees. So <laughs> obviously, uh, no, I have nine children. I have nine children. Three are still at school, one's at university, but only probably, you know, a couple of truly independent. So there's still a lot of outgoings related to my children, which obviously I'm completely fine with. And it's, you know, I've, uh, my eldest child is 30 now. So this has been a long running wow. sort of yeah. thing. Um, but definitely that's um, probably as it should be, you know, giving your children the best chance in life obviously is a normal, natural thing. And do you have any book you would recommend um, that you've read recently? Okay, so am I allowed to recommend one written by my son? 
<laughs> so, of course. <laughs> okay, it's just out. So it's called A Short History of Islamic Thought. And it's brilliant, condensed. If you, if as I think a lot of us do, we want to understand more about Islam, but we're not sure where to start and we don't want to put in hours and hours and hours. Um, it's 250 pages that cover 14 centuries. And um, although I'm obviously biased, it is getting really good reviews. It is actually out to buy on the 11th of November. Fitzroy Morrissey, there you go. And obviously he is a relation, so all disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> we'll add that in the show notes. So Helena, we can find you on Twitter at Morrissey. Helena, we can find you on Instagram, Helena Morrissey, where we can um, learn more about but like your lifestyle and the behind the scenes, which I think is really nice. And of course, your book, Style and Substance, a guide for women who want to win at work. Really recommend it if you, you know, in the workplace want to. Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily only about style, even if it's the you know first word of the book. And you, you talked about that, but it's a lot about yeah how to manage your career. So I think it's yeah very important book for any women um, in the workplace. Helena. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Emily. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Wallet today. Please share with a friend and subscribe or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, we have a new format coming out. So I need you to send me your proud money moments, your questions and comments via hotline at emily at Speak to you next week.